Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Addicted Pod. I'm your host, Adrian, and today I have an extreme story of addiction recovery for you guys. My guest grew up in a party house and began drinking and doing drugs at a very early age, which helps numb out from childhood traumas. Meth, cocaine, prescription pills, and then eventually heroin and fentanyl. I mean, this guy, I'm not exaggerating when I say he tried it all and he's lucky to be alive. He had an overdose, went to rehab at age 25, and still, with friends dying all around him, took two more relapses to eventually admit he was an addict and begin the path of recovery. The 12 steps played a vital role as he rebuilt his health and mental well-being, finally being able to truly be present with family members, including his grandparents at the end of their lives, and experiencing real friendships. Please join me in welcoming the co-host of the Not So Anonymous podcast, Donnie. addict uh, recovering you know alcoholic drug addict uh, I guess just uh, I'll start from the beginning man uh, uh, early age before I even picked up a drink I was definitely addicted to uh, you know getting away with things that I shouldn't have been doing and adrenaline was my first drug that I or the first euphoric feeling that I felt um, you know I can remember <laughs> you know, stealing cigarettes and like half smoked cigarettes that my parents would throw out. Like I would pick them up and hit them. You know, I wanted to do things that they were doing because it was like larger than life, you know, like the the people that I was surrounded by. Uh, I grew up in a family of uh, drinkers, you know, drug addicts, uh, big, big party scene always. Uh, every It was work hard, party even harder. And you grew up in Arizona? No, no. I'm, so I'm from Ohio. Okay, cool. And, uh, it, I'm, I'm grateful for my childhood, man. It was like, it's amazing, dude. I had a lot of, you know, great experiences, great people, but also a lot of inappropriate things that I was exposed to at an early age that I probably shouldn't have been, you know, but that was just the normal. Everyone's world is different. And, and that would just happen to be my world that I was born into. So I didn't know any different and a lot of different traumas, unhealthy relationships with, you know, my parents my you know close relatives growing up my first drink was probably nine I can remember it like it was yesterday you know a small bottle of Jägermeister on an airplane that my older cousin gave me and I'll never fucking forget it right because it was just like that first boom that sense of just whatever whatever it was you know it was indescribable at the time and uh yeah man it progressed from there on you know, smoking weed at an early age influenced by a lot of older people um, you know, I got into pain pills probably by the time I was like 14 or 15 cocaine at a young age too. Um, and it just progressed, man, quick, like throughout high school, like I said, it was a big party. My house was the party house. Uh, my parents would rather have us drink and party at the house than be out driving, doing reckless shit. Yeah. So we, so I'd have, you know, I'd, have hundreds of people over, man. Had like this awesome house, uh, a half acre pond and a pavilion and all this shit. So I would have like a hundred people. Damn. All of the kids, we'd all put money together and buy kegs. We would get money together and buy my parents a hotel room, like an hour, two hours away. So we would just have the house. Just have the place to yourself. The yeah. The whole weekend, you know, and just party, dude. <laughs> Damn. But it, it got deep and dark, <laughs> you know, as the time went on. Uh, I got my first charges I, I had like a concealed weapon charge uh criminal damaging uh, all kinds of charge when i was like 16 17 and underage drinking 
cops knew me by my first name in my town. It was like a smaller town. So they all knew who I was. And somehow I, you know, I always had a job. My first job was at like 13. So I, I was, I was surrounded by family businesses from a limo business to um, a construction business to like all these different uh, entrepreneurs or whatever in my family. So I had a work ethic and I knew I had to work to pay for whatever I wanted. And so I did that. Um, and <laughs> it's a lot of, a lot of crazy shit in my childhood that and in my early teen years that kind of shaped me and in, into who I am now, you know, and a lot of different lessons. So 18, I got my first DUI and everyone I knew, all right. I didn't know anything about sobriety or recovery. It was all, you know, work hard, party hard and AAs for quitters. Like that was some shit that we've seen on TV or like, you know, you see a small, small circle of guys and it was like them hugging and shit. And the way I was raised was like, <laughs> guys don't show emotions, like handle your shit. Don't be, a, you know, yeah, yeah. Like man up, like, right. <laughs> so there, so there were like no family members or no friends that you knew that were in recovery. It was all like, yeah, I didn't know anything about recovery until, you know, until I was 25 was my first introduction to recovery first DUI 18 and uh then I got another one when I was like 22 but I had you know multiple charges and and small things in between that car accidents (laughs) left and right um like I said small town I I knew a lot of people I didn't get in the trouble I probably should have been which kept my my addiction going, you know, and, and then I thought I was a badass. I thought I was untouchable, you know, unstoppable. Yeah. I was like fucking ego and my pride were out, out of the roof. You know, I thought I was someone, uh, I, I was also selling drugs a lot. That's how another way I maintained my addiction. I started growing weed at an early age, uh, pain pills and I was selling a lot of pain pills. Right. So I always had them and I never got sick because they, they were always just there for me. It wasn't until, you know, later on that, like, they started getting really expensive, right? Because the DEA cracked down all the doctors, the opiates, you know, all that shit was getting shut down. So the people I was selling all my, all my pills to, they all couldn't afford it anymore. So they all, you know, the alternative was heroin and fentanyl. And I was like, no, I'll never, you know, I still had all these connections where they were like dropping off one after another and came to the point i remember my first time i got like like sick off of pills and i started withdrawing i was like what the fuck is this you know my friend gave me a suboxone for my first time and that shit it was a subutex that shit you know i was done i I got high as hell off of it and then you know i was just back and forth i finally knew what withdrawal was and i didn't want to feel that way ever again so one of my close relatives uh, a cousin of mine that went off that route to the fentanyl stuff. He, uh, he gave me some stuff, told me it was one thing and it happened to be fentanyl overdose. My first time I did it, thank God my neighbor, like they, they covered me with ice. They were smacking me in the face, stern and rubbing me. Like they kept me alive, right. For, you know, until I would, until it wore off and you know, the good addict I am, I got up and I was like, shit, I want, I want some more of that, you know? Yeah, I made it. I survived. It's good. Let's do it again. I talked shit on people that did that did heroin, right? I didn't know that's what I was doing, but once I did it, that door was open. There's yeah. multiple times, like in the book, in the, the big book, it talks about, we don't know when and where we like cross that line into 
full-blown you know addiction but i did and and i can remember like the different levels of the different doors that i opened up with you know certain drugs that i tried uh and that kind of set me off man to there was you know i had a girlfriend she was living with me for years uh when that ended i had my grandpa passed away all this stuff all happened at the same time so it was that emotional pain on top of me being exposed to these hardcore drugs that got me I didn't feel any of that. I didn't want to yeah. feel it. So that was it. Like, boom, I'm, I'm off to the races now because I'm trying to mask all that trauma, all the emotional pain, everything with that drug, whatever it was. And more overdoses. I, I ended up losing two of my best friends to overdoses. Wow. Then I, you know, I got, I got caught with, uh, with drugs. I fell, fell out in my car. I got a McDonald's because I was waiting for someone to uh to sell them the drugs but i i did some and I fell out i had the drugs all on my lap cops catch me so i'm getting charges and they're like go to treatment and whatever stay sober so my lawyer tells me stay sober go to treatment and you'll we'll, we'll be able to get you out of this maybe just with some probation it was like i was looking at felonies and so i did that right i go into treatment for my first time where did you go what was I was the, uh... I was in Ohio. Yeah, it was a treatment center there. It was right in the hood, man. It was like you know, it's pretty. Did you uh... know some of the people? Like when you went to treatment, would you recognize people? Like, did you know people there? Or it was all a new experience. No, it was all a new experience for me, man. I, yeah. I might. I don't really. It was. My mind was in such a fog because, like, literally, I used from the time I was twelve, thirteen till this was when I was like twenty four and a half, twenty five or so, right around there. So my mind was like a so fogged with the drugs and yeah. the chemicals. Cause I literally was like, I did everything possible like that I could find, you know, it's got to the meth, the crack, the heroin. By this point, I'm like all out everything. Xanax, you know, I don't even remember the, like the beginning of my twenties because I was. Yeah. It's just a daily thing at that point, just to get by, just to numb out from everything. Somehow I had this job, right, that I got when I was 21, traveling the country, building dick sporting goods, and I did that, dude. I would leave for months at a time. I did, like, that was another thing. I was always hot, man. It didn't matter. That part of my life was just, like, such a blur for me. Uh, Everywhere I went, I went to, like, 40-some states in the country, working, different job, every different city every week or every month, and it didn't matter where I was at. I found drugs, dude, or I would fly with them. I was flying with heroin, like all these Xanax. It didn't matter, man. Like I couldn't be sick, right? I couldn't go without my drug because I had to just maintain. I had to go to work. I had to do this. And I found myself in some places that were super sketchy. You know, I I would look up the most dangerous, you know, streets or the most dangerous place in each city I was at. And we, we would go there and find whatever the hell we needed, you know, and Anyways, back to that. So I kept that job for a long time until, you know, it, my drugs, I was just like, fuck the job. I was sleeping in, not showing up. I was running a crew of people. Somehow they let me run a crew of guys and I would fall asleep at on the lunch break and never even show back up to work. And I, they would be like, where the fuck are you? You know, like, so, and, and that was the best thing that happened to me. Right was for me to get that job taken away from me because that was also another thing that maintained my addiction it looked good i as long as i was working and i had yeah 
you could say to yourself and to people that you're functional, you're still working your job, you're still able to pay for the habit, do everything. So, yeah. Yeah. And then, uh, so, you know, I'm at home, I would work like six months out of the year and then I would go, I'd be back home and have all this money and just fucking party. Oh, you only had to work six months. Like you were good. Yeah. We would work like 70 hours a week. Like, wow. You know, and that's where like the Adderall and the meth. (laughs) Yeah. The uppers, the uppers were needed just to keep going. I was just doing everything. I was like the mad scientist just to feel that, that level, you know? And one of those those times, you know, I I'm back home is when I get those charges. Um, and, and so I end up in treatment, right. For my first time. And it was like fucking light bulbs going off in my head. But at the same time, I didn't, I was still fighting it. Right. I didn't think I had a problem. Like I was just, the shit was just getting a little too much. Right. I just needed a little break and I'd be good. Well, I had all that, those charges over my head. And I was like, I don't want to go to prison. I don't want to go to jail. I don't want to be a felon, all this stuff. So I'm just going to do what they say and go to treatment. And the guy comes into H and I, he shares his story with me and I'm like, okay, this is, this was the first time that I heard someone actually share like experience, strength and hope because on like a super vulnerable level, you know, like a grown ass man just talking about all this trauma and these things and how he made it through it. And now he's, you know, he's sober. And that guy ended up being my first sponsor. He came up to me and he was like, or whatever. I was, I thanked him for coming in and sharing. And then he was like, Oh yeah, you know, you go to meetings when you get out of here. And I had no clue what an AA meeting was until, or any meetings until I went there. And so I get out, I don't have a license. I go, I'm there for 45 days, uh, dude overdosed in there. Another dude died like in this treatment center while we're, you know, while I'm there, but none of that's, none of that's like even phasing me, dude. Were you, were you on, uh, were you on Suboxone or anything to help you to like taper down or it was close? I did a seven day detox, seven day taper with the subs and, and the pheno, phenobarbital because I was on Xanax. Like I was taking three, three bars a day. Wow and and drinking like it was just chaos so i did the seven days and and i when i got to the treatment center it was a 45 day like inpatient a residential or whatever and i was still sick like the whole time you know that's what i was gonna ask like what the how are you feeling physically physically i was fucked like i even when i got out i was still like just dripping sweat like my body didn't know what to do you know yeah um that guy picked me up, man. He took me to meetings, though. Like I can remember sitting in meetings, just dripping sweat still after, like, you know, two months or whatever, 45, 50-some days of, like, sobriety. I'm still yeah. a nervous wreck, fearful, anxiety, just, just, it was a crazy, you know. Now, now I'm talking about it. I'm thinking back to, like, how I was and how I felt at that time, and it was, it was bad, dude. Yeah, and they wonder why people relapse, or they wonder why people need more than one treatment. It's like... You did not come out of there a healthy specimen ready to face the world. You're literally like, yeah, you're you needed a drug more than you ever did in your life in that moment. So you I better did, find yeah. something better. Or you're going right back out. And that's the thing. I wasn't like all these people I seen that were like, you know, doing the suboxone or doing the antidepressants or doing this. Like they they all had some kind of crutch with the like the Vivitrol, and I was just like, fuck that. I've been reliant on this drug, on these chemicals for so long. Like I don't want any of that stuff. And I, and just by hearing everyone, I knew it was going to lead me back to the same shit, you know? Anyways, my drug, the thing that helped me the most at that time was the meetings, dude. I would go to two, two or three meetings a day 
Wow. Um, that, that same sponsor, he, he told me, he made me go introduce myself to everyone at these meetings and got super uncomfortable. But I, you know, I, I stayed sober for, I don't know, about five months. And in that five month period, another friend of mine, uh, we, this is this is one of my friends that passed away, right? He this he he died on my my time when I was like after I got sober that first time. He was we would go to the gym together, work out. He was real big into like bodybuilding and stuff, and he was also struggling with the with the drugs at the same time. And that was another thing that helped me, man, was working out the physical mm-hmm. the physical aspect of it. But I've had I had multiple spiritual experiences in that time of my sobriety, and I started feeling good because I'm working out. And then I start doing steroids with this with this person, and it you know. And next thing I know, I'm feeling good, right? Physically, I'm mentally, my the fog is lifting a little bit, and I'm like, okay, I'm cool, dude. I can drink now, like I can drink. It's just I just need to get rid of the drugs. So I pick, I drink it. I'd never forget it, man. I picked up a double Jack and Coke at a bowling alley with some friends and family, and it set that obsession off, dude. And it went on for another year. It got super dark again, you know, heroin, crack, meth, like all that. That's where my first drink takes me. It might yeah. disguise itself as a as a beer, and then next thing I know, I'm fucking at a trap house, you know, or with a needle in my arm, gun to my head. Like that's where it took me. But it's like, oh, a beer never killed anybody. It's one beer. I'll have a beer. It's like such a dangerous thought. Yeah. Yeah. Every, <laughs> it's it's funny like how people question you when you when you're at a bar and you or you're hanging out with people and you don't drink. They question you more than yeah. like you are drinking. You know, too much. It's yeah. It's weird how it works, man. It's like something's wrong with you if you drink if you're not drinking. Yeah. It's it's funny, dude. Uh, I put myself around people, places, and things that I shouldn't have. And I, but I needed that, right? I, I got sober again. My, my grandparents lived out in Arizona as snowbirds. Uh, this time it was for my family, right? I was about to lose my, my, you know, everything, house, car, all that stuff. Somehow I managed a lot of shit. I don't know how, man, still to this day. Uh, so my family kind of came, gave me an ultimatum and it was, I needed it. I mean, I was like spirit, I was broken. So I went into treatment for my second time after a really long and hard run just went to detox this time <clears throat> and i was like i got this i know what to do you know when i get out so i went i went to some meetings my grandparents lived in arizona and uh i was like i need to change it up i need to get out of this environment because i i sold drugs with so many people i had so yeah. many fucking connections that i was like i needed to just get out i couldn't even go to the gas station without seeing someone that i sold drugs to or someone was asking me, or people, my house was the party house, so people would just stop over and be like, either bring me shit, or they would yeah. be asking me for something. That's insane. I couldn't just, like, lock my door. Like, I would lock my doors, you know, but people would still just be knocking, you know? It was crazy. Yeah. So I, I leave, I come out here, I meet some people, and uh, I go to work. They, they give me this job, you know, um, doing construction, like my third day out here. And and I go see a visit a friend that's from Ohio that moved out here, and this is this is like the the trick right the cunning baffling and powerful. I'm sober for about four months at this time. I go hang out at the pool. I uh, I drink a fucking Bud Light Lime with him, you know. And that's right there, dude. Bud Light Lime set me off on this yeah crazy you know rampage of drug addiction again. And I'm like, it's like wait a second, there's drugs down in Arizona too. Whoa! Oh, like, yeah. well, no, you found yeah, it. It started in Arizona, right? Yeah. 
I'm still working and I'm drinking and I'm doing meth, but as long as I'm not doing heroin, I'm good because I don't want to die like my friends mm. did, you know, and, and I could look back. I was at their funerals high as a kite, you know, doing drugs in the bathroom at the funeral home because that's mm. the power of my addiction. I couldn't, I had no choices, right? I do drugs. I get high. I walk out. Everyone's crying and I'm, you know, I'm crying too. Cause this is fucked up. My parent, my family's like, Oh, never do this to us. You know? And I'm like, no, I would never, you know, I'm not high. And, Next thing you know, I'm overdosing again. Thank God for Narcan. Um, anyway, so I do that Bud Light Lime. I drink that Bud Light Lime. It sends me off on this this uh, another another path, right? And I end up going back to that job for a little bit. I'm traveling again because uh, Arizona wasn't working for me. The heat and the meth and the drinking just wasn't working, right? So I, I leave. I go back. And uh, I'm with the same people that I used to party with. And I end up back in Ohio for my sister's wedding. You know, I can remember I'm standing, I'm in her wedding, right? And I'm standing up there and I'm, I'm taking Suboxone because I, I'm trying to like maintain my shit a little bit during this wedding. Cause I don't want to like ruin this whole thing for her. Right. And I'm at the, the, up at the thing, I don't even know what to say when they're like getting married I'm just, yeah, yeah. I'm just drenched in sweat, just dripping sweat because I'm withdrawing so bad. And, uh, because I thought the Suboxone was going to like help me, but it, you know, I'm, I'm like kicked into like withdrawals during the fucking wedding. And you know, my brother-in-law's brother, he looks back at me and he's like, dude, are you, are you okay? And I'm like, I'm like, yeah, I'll be fine, dude. But I'm like dying up there. Jeez. Anyways, I make it, I, you know, I'm drinking, still partying. Uh, but it got to the point after that, after that wedding. And then I was like working there a little bit. I, in Ohio, I was working. But everyone was gone, right? It wasn't, it wasn't a party anymore, man. It was just a dark place to be in. I would be in my room for days at a time, blacked out windows, just, chasing that that high man that i could not catch chasing that relief or that euphoric feeling that it was not i wasn't there anymore like i couldn't even successfully get high it was just like just maintaining yeah everyone was gone in my life you know no one to talk to me no one even the people that did there i was like they're like dude you're like you're fucked up even my drug dealers were like because they see me when i like just first relapsed and i was like healthy looking to the point where I was at when I was 125 pounds and I'm like, Oh man. And I'm, you know, I'm just, and they're like, dude, you're fucked up, bro. Like, yeah. so help. I mean, that's pretty bad when your drug dealers are telling you that, you know? And, yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, like I said, I, I'm at, I'm in my room, right. With a gun to my head. Like I'm ready. I'm just, that's my only way out. That's literally the only way out that I could, that I could see. And for some reason, that was the first time that I was, genuinely like, I genuinely called and asked someone for help like on my own like my own willingness I was like hey I, I'm fucked up I need help but there was like that moment of clarity that a lot of people talk about was where it was like the the gift of desperation the pain the misery the depression got so bad but at the same time and I was ready to kill myself and then like my whole the past like my life just flashed before my eyes and I was like holy shit like and and I just remember that that first time in sobriety when I had those spiritual experiences of like wow this is there's another way of living in a different life and I seen all those people in the meetings that are laughing and 
having a good time, like the happy, joyous and free of those people like that flashed in my mind, like, okay, there is another way out. And, and then that was when I called and I asked for help that first time. And that's what started me on this journey now. And that, that day right there was like, I consider my very, my very, uh, one of my, one of there's multiple levels of surrender, but that was like my big level of surrender that time or my first step was picking up the phone and like calling and asking for help. I had to set my pride to the side and, and just say like, I need help because it was, it was either that or I was going to just kill myself. Yeah. I would do drugs and hope I didn't wake up, but I continued to wake up over and over. And now I, looking back on it, I, I see where God was saved just showed up in my life time and time again, even in my addiction, he was protecting me. He was like, just, just trying to push me out of it. But I just, it was my own will that kept me in there. And I went into treatment that time, detoxed. Um, and thank God for the counselors in there. One of the counselors, man, he, his words, you know, like certain people say words to you and, and things and like they stick, they like they're etched in your mind forever. Like this counselor, I don't know if it was because I was so emotional, like just coming, I was you know, detoxing all this stuff, but he would just hit me with like, basically smacking me in the face like wake the fuck up dude like grow up first of all you're gonna die if you don't stop doing this like look around all your friends are dying left and right everyone you know it, everyone's either my other friends are either in prison or in jail or, or struggling in you know in treatment centers and mm. it's like drop the fucking shovel dude like quit digging yourself you don't, you don't have to keep going like just stop and then he was like you have all this potential man and you're just wasting it away how old were you at this point? You're like 25. No, no, no. This was this was like from the first time I got sober was about 25. Okay. Two relapses, and I'm like 27 and 27 and a half. So it's like two and a yeah, half yeah. years of like back and forth, trying to just fight it and and not not surrender to it. Right. I was trying to still control it. Yeah, yeah. You wanted to sort of get back to like a base level and then have another drink, have another, be able to sort of have fun again. Like you wanted to just sort of keep it under control. Yeah, yeah. without just surrendering to the fact that I was an alcoholic and I was a drug addict and that if I put anything in my body, I don't know where it takes me. I could say I might die. I could say I'm going to kill myself. I could say I'm going to end up in prison. I could say I'm going to end up back in treatment. But that's the thing now. I don't know where it's going to take me. Yeah. Like when I pay that first drink, I have no idea where i'm going. don't find out man don't find I know, out i don't that's enough people like, enough people died yeah oh yeah for sure but that that counselor you know he was like gave me the whole analogy of like the gazelle and the lion he was like what he's like what are you gonna be man your whole life you're gonna be the gazelle just you know you wake up they both run you're, you wake up in the morning and they're both running for two different reasons one's one's running to survive the gazelle is running to survive and running from the lion right and the lion is running to eat and to to, to stay alive right like from chasing something and he was like are you gonna fucking be the gazelle and run from your fears your emotions your trauma all that he's like are you gonna be the lion and you're gonna run for life man and then be successful and like and overcome all those fears and emotional pain and trauma and i don't know why that, that just stuck with me so much when he said that to me and his story was absolutely mind-blowing to me of where he like you know like his story of redemption or experience strength and hope and i was like well, shit, if you could do this, then should I, I mean, I know I could probably do this. Right. And I made a decision, man, in that treatment center that I was going to change my life forever. Like I was like, I'm not, I made that, 
that that decision, man. It was like I can't go back anymore, like to this. Like it's over. Like the I was like the old me. I was like killing the old me, right? I'm reading the Bible. I'm reading the big book, and you know some more spiritual experiences. I wake up in in that treatment center, I'm like three weeks in all together with with detox, and I wake up and I'm just like in scrubs in treatment again for the third time, and I'm like, how the fuck did I get here? <laughs> like what? Yeah. And so I and I don't recommend doing this, but I walked into the office, man, and that same that first sponsor I had, he uh he works at this treatment center now, right? That I'm at. And I'm like, all right, dude, I know what I need to do. I'm leaving. I'm, I'm, I'm good. You know, I still had like two weeks left of treatment and I'm like, I'm good, dude. I'm done. Like I had this moment of like, wait, this, this awakening that I was like, I'm done, man. And I, I can, I told him, he was like, you know, the chance you stand sober aren't good. And I was like, yeah, I know, man. They're like 10 you know, maybe 10% is going to stay sober. And I was like, yeah, well, I'm going to fucking be that 10%. Like my pride and my ego are like, I'm going to be that one that, that gets this, you know, and, and by the grace of God, I did. I left the treatment center. I went straight to a meeting and I continued to go to meetings every single day. I surrounded myself with sober people. I ended up moving back out to Arizona with like, you know, 45, 50 days sober, somewhere around there. And I, I made this plan, dude, that I was going to change my life and I was not going backwards. Like that's it. Damn. And that was when I, I got, I jumped into real estate school when I got out here I was a licensed realtor within, you know, two months of being out here. Um, I just was like in survival mode, like no other dude. Yeah. Two, two or three meetings a day on top of studying. Like I just filled my time up with recovery and learning. It was just like, my mind was a sponge again. And, and I was super anxious, anxiety, fearful, all that, dude. Like, my face still gets red to this day. Just, like, I don't know what it is. But it was super bad back then. I would just be sweating fucking bullets, like, walking up, introducing myself to people at meetings. Like, dude, dude I, did, I, w- I would force myself to put a smile on. Just, you just show up. Because, the one, you know, the people in the rooms, that one guy, man, he, he really drove home, like, gratitude, right? And... I really focus on gratitude. Like that's like a foundational piece of my sobriety and in, in my life is, is just focusing on the, on the things that I have. And, and I was blessed with another chance at life, dude. Like I look at these, these second chances and third chances, like that God gave me to like, you know, yeah. live a good life. Cause that's what, you know, we're supposed to have a happy, joyous and free life, man. It's my own will. When I, when I try to imply my own will on things is when everything gets fucked up. And, you know, to talk about the, the level, I talk about the levels of surrender while I'm in that, going to this meeting hall and I'm meeting people, right? God speaks through people and he puts people in your life for a reason, lessons, reasons. Uh, and, uh, the one, the one guy, man, he was 80, probably 84 at this time. He's got 30, almost 30 years of sobriety, never goes to the meetings, you know, and he just happens to show up to this one meeting and I end up talking to him, man. And he's like, Oh, you, you know, you're working your steps. And, and the first two times I was sober, I would do like the one, two, three, I would just show up in meetings, half-ass it. And I was on my, on the path to doing the same exact thing. So you didn't have a sponsor at that point. You would just show up. You would sort of say hi. I would talk to people after the meetings, but I wasn't putting the work in yet. Yeah. But it wasn't until that guy was like, you working your steps? And I'm like, 
no, yeah, yeah, no, I don't really have a sponsor. He's like, all right, I'm going to sponsor you. I'm like, uh, okay. And I gave the guy my number, right? Yeah, yeah. Instead of me calling him, he fucking calls me every day. And I'm like, what the hell does this old guy want, dude? <laughs> you know? He's selling it. Yeah, that he's like, he's like, you know, he's pushing me, man. Because yeah. he needed me just as much as I needed him. And yeah. that's how this thing works. But now to the, now this day, is like he's like one of my great best mentors that I have. And, but that, that he drove home that first step for me, you know, he made me read the first step like every day for a fucking month straight until I literally internalized it and truly believed. And I, and every morning I would reflect back on those dark times of where my addiction took me because it, it, you know, internalized the fact that I am completely powerless over any substance, dude. It doesn't matter what it is. So that was extremely important for me, you know, and then the first three steps, man, I, I work them every single day, every morning. I have to because it's it's a daily thing for me. It's not just like I made this one. I, I mean, I made the decision, but it's also I have to do that. I have to remind myself. You, you made the decision to do this now, to do this work now, right? Like you kind of when you left that treatment center and you said, like, I know what I have to do. Like, that's what you're doing now. You kind of you were right in the sense that you knew that you couldn't continue living the way that you were living and continue sort of trying to control the substances, trying to half-ass it and then still party and have fun. Like you really did hit that point of seeing that you could not live like that anymore. And that's, I, I wish everybody hit that. I wish your friends hit that moment as well. I wish some of these other people did. It's like, yeah, without that moment, right? You just keep trying. You'd keep trying to balance it out and get another job and keep, doing a little bit of drugs here and there until until you die or until you'd kill yourself like that's man your story is your story is so intense donnie it's i'm it's, so it's grateful awesome. for that gift of desperation right yeah and for the longest time people are like it's a miracle you're here it's a miracle you're here and like you know they talk about the gift when i think of a gift i think of something good right mm. well that that was <laughs> it didn't feel good yeah it didn't. <laughs> that was not a fun day <laughs> no it was not fun dude but now looking back yeah that was the best gift that i was ever given was that that pain that desperation all that man i also wanted to t ask you more about the um that person in the treatment center right he's telling you about the lion and the gazelle it reminded me a lot of uh earlier in your story you're talking about just growing up sort of the the uh, impression you get of 12-step meetings and recovery as like thinking that that's not for men, right? Like they're kind of hugging it in a circle. Like that's not a manly thing to do. That is not a man. A man drinks on the weekends, does drugs and can handle it, right? And then you get this person giving you this analogy about a lion, right? Like all men want to be a lion. A lion is like the, the epitome of like courage and strength, right? And I think your story, how much did that, start to become true for you as you started to chase recovery as you started to like work these steps and do these things did you feel like that was more of of being the lion more of being of demonstrating courage and demonstrating strength in that way oh for sure man i, I latched onto that because like, i'm a leo as well like that's oh, no I, yeah so i'm just like i, I latched onto that shit and, and it takes a lot of courage man to walk into the rooms and to change your life. Like it takes a lot to change. And that is and courage, man, is that's what it takes, dude. That and, and yeah. a lot of willingness, right? 
to do this. And for the longest time, I always grew up with that old, that idea or that belief that people don't change and people can't change because it was just, that's how everyone in my life, everyone said that they're like, Oh, they'll never change. They'll be like that forever. They're going to continue. Like that was, that was this idea that was beaten into my head so much. So to, I don't know. I don't know where I was going with that, but yeah, man, like it took a lot of courage dude, to, to do this stuff. And, and I applaud anyone that man did, just makes a decision to change their life because yeah. it takes courage to do that shit. It takes a lot of strength and yeah, I, I, I still, I grab onto that, but I also, I was in my captain recovery, you know, shit. I was chasing, chasing sobriety and recovery. Like my life depended on it because it did. Tell me about the steps, man. Tell me about like, so you start to work with a sponsor and you're working step like one to three every morning. Like what did that look like daily? So it was, it was praying, right? Uh, first of all, I would, I'd read a daily reflection book, like a thought for the day or just for today book. And that would activate my mind and, and remember, because when I wake up, you know, I, I wake up with untreated alcoholism, as they say, which is true. And I had to remember, you know, one of those really dark moments in my addiction is like, that's my first step, because that's where it takes me. So it's like, okay, and now I, I look there. And then I look at where I'm at now. Well, I woke up and today I can make a conscious choice I don't, my life isn't completely ran by that substance anymore. I'd had no choices in my addiction. And now I have a choice to, I, I choose life, right? I choose to live and I choose to be there and wake and go do these things, you know? And so that was my first step. And, and my the second and third is me praying, right? And asking God to, I say, God, that's my higher power. And I, and I say, like, I ask him to guide me throughout my day and, and, and allow me to help someone and be of service to someone else. And for the, at the first dude, that shit's weird, man. I don't know about you, but like, I will, I believe in evolution and science and like not yeah. at the beginning. Right. But it wasn't until I had those spiritual experiences that like showed me like, holy shit, you know, it's like a new pair of glasses and my, my eyes have been open to the world, you know, in a whole different way now. And that third step is a daily thing for me because like I said earlier, when I try to enforce my will or put my will into things, everything gets messed up, man. So like I and I I don't know, man. Like the church was a big part of that. I went on, I go on, I still do. I go on mission trips with my uh, with the church. I go build houses for or build houses with people awesome. that don't have any houses, like in third world countries. And that right there is just like that was part of my third step work, right? It's like going out and, and being of service and, and just asking God to use me. It's like, I vision myself just like, here you go. Yeah. I'm that tool. I'm that tool. Just use me. Yeah. I'm, I'm yours. Yeah. Like, that's it. And I have to, I have to continue to do that, but it wasn't until I, I, you know, I, I ended up with a, another, a sponsor, right? Because that first one, he's like a really good mentor and stuff, but he was also traveling and doing a lot of things and he was busy with life. So this other guy, you know, he super big impact on my life. He's pushing me to do the fourth and the fifth step. And it wasn't until, and I was overthinking it because everyone in the rooms is like, oh, the four steps, you know, people make it out to be this fucking huge thing when yeah. 
it's it's not that big of a deal. Just do it, right? And then the one guy tells me, he's like, well, I've never seen anyone die from doing a four-step, but I've seen a lot of people die from not doing a four-step. Yeah, no kidding. And I was like, oh, <laughs> damn, that makes yeah. sense. <laughs> yeah. And that was when I started writing, man, journaling. And, and I still journal a lot to this day. But, yeah, that breaking down and looking at all my patterns and all that and pulling back up all that trauma – like that was where all my all that my addiction was rooted from, man. It was like that early childhood, early teen years is a lot of a lot of it, man. It wasn't until Did you I ever go into did you ever go into therapy as well or you just did it all through the fourth step and through people in recovery? All through actually so it's great all through the fourth step, fourth and fifth step and, and yeah, the, the twelve steps for sure, you know. A lot of my therapy happened outside the rooms. That's where the whole podcast started. You know, the meeting after yeah. the meeting was just talking about the shit, right? Pulling up all that crazy yeah. stuff and talking through it. But also I had a business coach like that really, it was, he's a mindset coach as well. And for my real estate business, but he, he dug up shit out of me that I didn't even realize that I didn't even dig up in the fourth step, man, because of like the questions that he asked me. So it was like, and then I journal more on that. I journal more. I journal on my fears. I journal about all my insecurities, all these things. And, and that right there is the, like, I think the power of pen to paper, like people like I'll have sponsees and they'll be like, yeah, I typed it out. I'm like, no, 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 no. I want you to fucking write it out <laughs> because that's like where the power of it comes from. So I think my, all my therapy is, was, uh, you know, free from the rooms and, save that money yo it makes sense though because the fears and the resentments and the the trauma that will come up in business that will come up in trying to be a real estate agent when you're trying to negotiate or trying to uh be assertive or be confident right it's going to affect your confidence so of course it's going to come up with this other coach it's it's brilliant that like you had that experience as well and you had that other person to help you dig deeper because this is not just about the alcohol and drugs like this is about how you communicate with everybody how you feel about yourself how you look at yourself in the mirror and just go about your day like this stuff goes so deep so i'm glad you had that experience man yeah it's it's been a it it's not yeah you take away the drugs and the alcohol dude it's a it's definitely a mental problem man and i'm not saying like i've been through some struggles dude like depression anxiety still you know throughout my i call it the recovery roller coaster because i damaged my body i, I for so long my mind I just filled it with all these bad things forever. So I can't expect to just be perfect. Like I take away yeah. the drugs and alcohol and everything's going to be fine. Like, no, that is the furthest thing from the truth. It's just shit takes work, man. It takes yeah. willingness over continuous willingness every day. And, and to, to have some patience and give yourself some credit for just, you know, showing up. Like I always talk about 99% of it is just showing up to the rooms or to a meeting or picking up the phone, you know, my, my first mentor, he would call me after I didn't call him for three days. And he'd be like, what are your fingers fucking hurt, dude? You can't, you can't pick up your phone. <laughs> yeah. I'm grateful for that stuff like that, man. And But it's pride, right? It's pride. You don't want to admit that you're struggling. You don't want to admit that you need to talk to another guy. Like it's, it's just pride. It's just that ego kind of thinking that it can do it on its own. Pride and I, ego, yeah. man, to the max. And I, I always like, sponsees they won't call me and i'm like okay well i mean and i did the same thing right i called my dealer every day i'd go to gas stations and be like hey you got this but now i'm scared to call someone and be like hey you got some hope for me today or like <laughs> you got some recovery <laughs> oh my god
Yeah, no, that's a fair comparison. If you can call your dealer, you can call my, your sponsor. Yeah, pull it or, together. yeah. And uh, I know them early on phone calls, man, hours of like phone call recovery talk, dude, is yeah, sitting outside the meeting. That That's, I, I mean, I, so I, I, when I came to Arizona, right, I moved with my grandparents, right? And my, my grandma had 13 years in the program. She was sober. And I got to, this is like when COVID all happened at the same time. And I was able to give her her 13 year chip, right. And celebrate that experience with her because she couldn't go to meetings like because of COVID, you know, and I didn't know like how big that moment would be like later on in my, in my recovery, because, you know, she starts battling cancer for the third time. And, and this right here is like a prime example of how the program and the 12 steps and God can literally give you the strength and the courage to fight anything and battle anything in life, right? Without picking up a drink or a drug and, and watching her have that strength. She's 79 years old and, and beat cancer. This is her third time battling wow. cancer in her sobriety. Right. And I'm taking, yeah. I'm taking, I'm able to be here, take her to doctor's appointments. I'm living with them, cooking dinner for her and my grandpa, like doing all this stuff. And, and those memories, those moments are, are forever, you know, with me and, and all the lessons that she taught me, it was like, it was like a sober living house, but I wasn't, you know, in a sober living house. Right. So she's battling the cancer. She ends up going back to Ohio and, uh, my, her and my grandpa, my, and she passes away, right. Unexpectedly. She beat the cancer for the third time, but she, something else happened. It was like a blood clot, right. She passes away. My, and I get the phone call and my first immediate response is I, I fucking hit my knees and I started praying, dude, because that's all I had in that moment. I had nothing else, right? I couldn't do anything. I was completely, yeah. I was 100% powerless over this, over the situation and whatever happened. And, and she really, you know, beat that into my head too, is like the acceptance of like life is going to happen, but no matter what happens, you do not drink and you do not drink. Yeah. Like that's it. And that was where the first step came into me, it came like really hit home for me right then. And, and, uh, one of the guys on the podcast, Goomer, he was like the first person that I talked to right, like, you know, a few minutes after this. And then, and, and that's the thing is I never had friends, right. That would show up for me for like hard times in life. You know, they always were expecting something out of me. They were just there for the party. Yeah. They were there for the party or the drugs or my connections and shit like that. And this time, you know, I'm, he, you know, he comes over to my house and then Jordan, the other guy from the podcast, he comes over to my house and they sit and they hang out with me and they, just in this extremely tough time. Like I'm, I'm going through my first, like a first loss of someone that has been there for me my whole entire life. And, and she's just gone and I'm completely help. I'm powerless. I have nothing, you know, and, but they are there to just comfort me and be there. Not trying, you know, just that, yeah. that, that's it. I never had that before. And that right there is just, the power of the program as well and, and the brotherhood, the camaraderie, whatever you want to call it. And, and they were there, they took me to the airport the next morning, you know, I flew back and, and I was able to be there for my family. Right. I was able to give a speech at her funeral, like all this stuff that I never, ever would have done. You were able to be sober at this funeral as well. Like, you're, yeah. To talk about, talk about the impact that she had on my life, you know, and, and my early recovery. Yeah. It's just, it's wild, man. Like, when I talk about it, it's crazy. And then, and then my grandpa, he, I fly back out to Arizona after all that. And my grandpa, he gets COVID 25 days later and passes away. Wow. 
But once again, I'm like, I'm powerless over this situation and I cannot, uh, you know, and my sister, she was really struggling with it. And I was like, I want you to, I want you to go grab my grandma's big book. I was like, I want you to read page 417. Acceptance. Yeah. She has no knowledge of the program or anything. And I tell her to read this and, and she reads it and she calls me back and she's like crying her eyes. And she was like, and the only thing in there in, in the book that, that is highlighted is acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. And absolutely nothing happens in God's world by mistake. And she literally was like, did you guys like, did you fucking have this highlighted? Like, or does the book come like this? And I was like, no, like obviously, you know, grandma had that already mm -hmm. highlighted. And I don't just the, the acceptance fact of life is going to happen. And, and like, living in God's world, man, is, is allowed me to accept things that and handle situations that used to baffle me. Like the promises talk about things that used to, you have to numb out from for things that you literally could not be present with because they're so painful. Right. Instead of, instead you can now be present with that. And instead you can actually be in front of your grandma passing, your grandfather passing and, instead of having to escape, you can show up there. You can actually give a speech and, and give back, do something that they would be proud of. Like that's, that's recovery. That's recovery right there. It's, it's beautiful. It is, man. And then the, the whole, the brotherhood with the podcast and how that all came about was, was all, all on, it was all up to God, man. It was like, it's crazy how he's always working in all of our lives, dude, from, like, we don't even know it, man. Like, he's taking me, putting me through all this stuff and, and putting me in this fellowship out in the middle of Arizona where I've never been in my life, you know, and then bringing, you know, Dylan into the fellowship. We meet, I, 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 I complimented him on a watch that he was wearing. And that was like, I didn't know, right, that that one single little compliment was going to start off this friendship that has grown into this amazing thing with the podcast and like this all kinds of stuff, man. And then Goomer, right? I, he comes in beaten and broken, standing at the coffee pot, like doesn't even know where to go. And, and I have some time, in progress. time of sobriety and uh, whatever. I go introduce myself to him and I didn't know that he was going to become one of my like closest friends in recovery. It's, it's like that whole thing of just walking up and introducing yourself to people, man, because you never know who God is putting in your life for a reason or yeah. for a lesson. And, uh, and then Jordan, you know, he's from Washington. Then he went to Hawaii and lived there for years, you know, and then gets sober and his parents end up living in Arizona and, and he goes to treatment and then he comes down to Arizona, walks into the same fellowship. And it's like all these puzzles, all these puzzle pieces were just being organized and just put together. And we would sit out back of the meeting hall, man, and just talk for hours about, recovery and laugh our asses off of how fucked up we were and like how we're just trying to get by right and just do Dude, that's why that's why i loved your guys podcast that's why i loved the video that i watched because this isn't a bunch of guys that are like miserable trying to survive like the, these are guys that just love being alive they love like getting to hang out and just being able to be there for each other and they're guys that have been there with each other and have had really tough times and now they can be present in life and they can have those connections. Like that's what drew me to the, to the not so anonymous podcast. It's like, you guys are just having a great time. You're just chilling. <laughs> yeah, man. That's, that's the whole, that's the whole point, dude. It's just like yeah. to convey the message of 
we're just people, right? We don't have shit figured out. Well, we're just sharing our experience, man, whatever that may be. Because it's a journey, dude. It's not about the destination of, of you know, it's it's about enjoying yeah. the experience, too, and enjoying the, the journey. And like I said, we've all been through some hard times, definitely, like, but that's the, we're there for each other, no matter what happens, like. Donnie, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. Before we, before we wrap it up, I think the one thing I want to ask you, or the, the last thing I want to leave with people listening is, what would you say to people who are just going through withdrawal, who are going through that physical experience, who might feel like it's impossible, who might feel like it's hopeless? What's one thing that you would leave them with if they're listening to this? If they're going through withdrawals, man, I, I honestly just, just literally hold on. Just just hold on, man. Time, it will it will pass, right? I used to, me and Goomer would be on phone calls and he was going through it. And this, I, I tell this to a lot of people, like this too will pass. You know, if you need to do some kind of physical thing, exercise to like get out of it, it's just changing your thoughts, changing your circle your life will change literally. And, and just hold on, man, pick up the phone, call someone, ask for help, go to a meeting. Like I used to sit at meetings and then I would go to lunch after with people and I'd be on the phone in between the meetings, like whatever it took, whatever I was feeding my mind with anything recovery. I was reading books. I was listening to podcasts. I was whatever, listening to music, like anything to get me out of, out of up here, dude. That's what I did yeah yeah so just hold on man it does it gets better i can i can promise yeah. you that you know dude i see i see how it got better for you i'm happy for you man i'm happy for you guys just running the podcast i'm definitely you guys have a listener you guys have another listener of the show and yeah thanks so much for coming on the show donnie we're, we're gonna be in touch soon and uh i wish you all the best man really grateful to have heard your story yeah man i appreciate you dude i appreciate your podcast and any way to carry the message man is it's a miracle, right? Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode of The Addictive Pod. If you got anything out of what Donnie shared and you want to hear more from him, please check out the Not So Anonymous podcast at podcastnsa.com. There you can find the Instagram links, YouTube videos, merchandise, and everything else for the Not So Anonymous podcast. That's all for me today. Don't forget to like and subscribe to The Addictive Pod on whatever listening platform you use. And check it out on Instagram, at Addictive Podcast. Take care, and until next week, remember, we recover together.